Hi, I'm Lou Eisen. Welcome to Ring Talk. Uh, today we have a fantastic show for you. We have a guest I've been waiting a long time, one of my heroes in the sport of boxing, Adam J. Pollock. The J stands for just brilliant, because that's absolutely what he is. He's a member of the Boxing Writers Association of America. He should be Boxing Writers Association of America. He's one of the top boxing referees and judges in the entire sport. He's a former coach, and he's an attorney living in Iowa City, Iowa, and I love attorneys. All my all my cousins and relatives are attorneys. Adam was a guest lecturer on the career of John L. Sullivan for the Whitehall Lecture Series at the Flagler Museum in Florida. Mr. Flagler, by the way, was part of Standard Oil 100 years before, and also an interviewee in the documentary film on James J. Corbett, the Gentleman Prize Fighter, which was narrated narrated, excuse me, by Liam Neeson and Adam's book. On James J. Corbett is the best book ever written on James J. Corbett. In fact, Adam's book on every champion is the best book ever written on that champion. Adam has written and published In the Ring with John L. Sullivan, In the Ring with James J. Corbett, uh, Fitzsimmons. Fitzsimmons' book brought me to tears, and I was really upset when it ended. I wasn't ready to let go. It was a friend, it was more than a book. And in the ring with James J. Jeffries, in the ring with Marvin Hart. No one knows anything about Marvin Hart, but when you read Adam's book, you'll know more than anyone else except Adam, of course. In the ring with Tommy Burns. And this is an interesting point. Canadians almost know nothing about Tommy Burns. You know, and here's Adam, a brilliant, a genius writer and boxing historian who went to look up Tommy Burns. And this is an unbelievably brilliant book. And that's a cosmic understatement. Uh, in the Ring was in part one, The Rise, and In the Ring with Jack Johnson, part two, The Rain, Black Man versus the World. And I mean, this book will just, it'll take your breath away. And his most recent book, which Thomas Hauser raved about, in fact, Thomas Hauser, who's written about Muhammad Ali, raves about all of Adam's work, is Jack Je In the Ring with Jack Dempsey, part one, The Making of a Champion. And it's available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon.com, and Win by KO publications on their website which he owns and he's published many other fantastic authors and it's a thrill and a privilege it's an extreme privilege to welcome to the show adam j pollock adam great to have you here thank you so much for having me that was a very kind and over generous introduction well thank you i don't think so for a person as brilliant as you you're incredibly modest and I, I find that in in a lot of people that I that I've met that are incredibly brilliant, Dempsey. And I, I never met Dempsey, of course, but I mean people like yourself. You just have this streak of modesty, and I guess you just keep your head down and keep writing. What was it in you originally when you started writing about? And we're going to get to the Dempsey book in a second, but when you started writing about Dempsey and all these champions, what was it inside you that made you do it? Was it you weren't satisfied with the information or the books that were out currently at that time? Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it, as I felt like uh, there was more out there to be had and it, you know what, what had been done previously could be improved upon and and I, I set out to do it. And people seemed to like the books and so I kept doing it. Well, more than liking the books, I mean, people adored the books. I mean, your writing is similar to that of David McCullough and Michael Bechloss and Doris Kearns Goodwin. I mean, your works are definitive. Once you write about them, no one else can write about them because there's, they can't do it as well as you can. With Dempsey, 
the question I've been waiting all week to ask you, Adam, is what is it about Dempsey that makes him such an enduring character? Even today, he hasn't held a title since 26, 97 years ago. And yet he's still a global phenomenon. He's still known throughout the world. People still love the name. He's still Americana. He's still part of world history, sports history, American history. What makes him so enduring? I guess you'd have to read the books to figure that one out. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of things that helped Dempsey. Um, I mean, think of a young Mike Tyson, how that reinvigorated a lot of uh, interest in boxing. If you, if you harken back to the 80s when Mike Tyson came out, it just there's a huge boost of energy to the sport for many years as a result of him. And Dempsey was like Mike Tyson before Mike Tyson. He was this young you know, uh, killer, you know, just came out to fight, blasted a lot of guys out really quickly and, and just was ferocious. And he, he reinvigorated interest in the sport. And, you know, he, he kind of coalesced at a time when boxing was getting bigger and bigger and getting more press coverage. Um, the gates started getting bigger and bigger. He was the first million dollar payday, you know, first million dollar gate, et cetera. So, you know, it just, he just captured the public's imagination. Did um when when he came along, or, or I guess one of his biggest fights before he won the title was the 18 second demolition of Fred Fulton. Is there any film that exists prior to the Willard fight of Dempsey in the ring? You know, none that's been found. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist somewhere, but just nobody knows where it is. I, I I'm pretty sure the Fulton fight was filmed. Um, the question is what happened to the films? Obviously, they weren't very long. Right. Uh, um, I'm pretty sure some of the films were shown to uh, the military, members of the military. Obviously, also what, what hurt back then was uh, the nitrate films disintegrated very badly. They weren't preserved very well. Um, also, the, um, the Interstate Commerce Act that uh, prevented the interstate uh, transportation of fight films helped limit their pro proliferation. Although people tended to violate that law uh, and increasingly with impunity as Dempsey's fights became more and more famous and generating more income, it was just right. too much money to, to turn down. So they started violating the law and transporting them anyway. And... Yeah, I know with Jack Johnson, they, they, that rule came in because of Johnson but when I spoke to Steve Lott, whom you knew, the late great Steve Lott, he said the Johnson Burns fight, he said there, there is, he saw the film where Burns is actually knocked at a canvas, but it was edited out. They got rid of it. They didn't want people to see it. And he said, because of that, it was just very difficult, you know, after that, as you're saying, to get films anywhere throughout the United States, although people were doing it. Um, would you say it's fair to say that Dempsey and Babe Ruth were the reason for the big money in the 1920s? Or was it Dempsey himself? Um, well, Dempsey, Dempsey made Babe Ruth look like a pauper. Uh, the amount of money right. Dempsey made was phenomenal. It was just unheard of, uh, you know. Um, Dempsey was making more in one fight than Babe Ruth made in several years of playing baseball. Um, it's not even close. So, um, you know, the 1920s was a, you know, a boom in general, but, you know, I don't, I don't think you could put that many 
rear ends and seats, you know, in any other sport at one time for the kind of prices that they were charging and also generate the kind of, you know, revenue they were with the films, right. unless you're just a phenomenal star. And so as, as big as Babe Ruth was, the truth is Dempsey was bigger. Um, uh, one thing I do want to uh, allude to is the De the Johnson Burns fight films. That fight was filmed in its entirety, I do believe. And I think that the films okay. were shown in their entirety initially. Um, there are some claims that the, the film was edited. I, I guess that's possible, but I think more likely the films disintegrated over the years or weren't, or they played certain parts of the film so many times that they, you know, they disintegrated. And so the you know certain parts of the films just don't exist anymore. Right. Um, I don't know that they you know intentionally edited edited those parts out. I, I I have some doubts about that. Okay, I'm just repeating what Steve Steve Lott was saying, but yeah, you could never. I, I would if they you know I'd love to see the complete film, but I, as you're saying, it's probably a lot of it because of it was it was done in nitrate has disappeared, so hard to find a, a complete copy of the film. It's frustrating at times when you're watching it that you're only getting pieces of rounds rather than each round full. Yeah, I mean, that's a sad part. I mean, it's wonderful that we can still look at fights from 1908 and even, even you know, partial rounds or, you know, selections. It still right. gives the flavor of, of the strengths and weaknesses of the various fighters, so it's wonderful. But unfortunately, they didn't preserve uh, very well and, and nitrate film was also very flammable as well. A lot of them burned. Now, would you say Dempsey made the times or the times made Dempsey? I mean, it's a little a bit of both. Right. If he wasn't phenomenally talented, um, I don't think he would have been as, as, as big as he was. I, I think boxing was craving someone like him to some degree as well. But, you know, he people i mean let's let's look at it this way like when he when he drilled willard and the and you know it was one of the most brutal things anyone had ever seen and willard was highly respected because he had beaten the great jack johnson you know he was you know jack johnson was 230 pounds lightning fast tremendous skills pounded on willard for 20 rounds and, and willard never went down so willard was seen as this you know iron man huge guy six six you know 235 240 pounds it's a big dude and Dempsey just went through him like nothing. So it just it just made people go, oh, my God. And it got, you know, garnered a lot of interest in his career. Was the, the beating that Willard took as boxing's premier historian, is that the worst beating you've ever seen a fighter take, you think, in the history of filmed fighting, including uh, the second Lewis Schmeling? Um, you know, that's always really hard to say. I've seen a lot of beatings over the years. Um, there's been there's been a lot of brutal fights. You know, he probably suffered less damage in three rounds from Dempsey than some guys suffer in you know twelve or fifteen rounds, um, and you know that maybe they don't get knocked out or they get knocked out late, but just the the overall cumulative damage that they suffer in round after round after round does more to destroy their their minds, their brains, their, their careers. So it's it's, it's hard. So, like, uh, I'll tell you, one of the fight, most brutal fights I ever saw was Riddick Bowe versus Andrew Galata. Yeah. Um, particularly this, the second fight. It, it was such a brutal, brutal. I don't think either one of them were ever the same again. You know, no, no, absolutely. And, and certainly 
having met Bo, it affected him mentally after the fight. I mean, that was a vicious beating. Yeah. Um, with with um, Willard, there was a book that came out on Willard in the last couple of years, and it purported to show a, it showed a photograph of a pristine face and said, this is what he really looked like. But after the fight, but when I did Cinderella Man, I was privileged. Angel Dundee introduced me to Bud Schulberg and he sat fourth row with his father who was head of Paramount Films. So he was there and and he said, you, you wouldn't recognize Willie, that his nose was broken, teeth were knocked out. He said, people were at ringside, were reaching into the ring to grab the teeth that Willard had lost. And, you know, there was a point where his father put his hand over Bud's face because he was saying it was just, he'd never seen a human take a beating like that. It was like he'd been attacked by a gang. Well, I mean, Dempsey did pulverize him very badly. I mean, dropped him seven times in the first round, but Willard got up and continued and fought two more rounds and actually did okay. I mean, he was still getting pounded on, but he actually nailed Dempsey a few good ones here and there, and he was trying his best. Um, I think they overblew how badly he was hurt in that fight. I mean, he was very badly hurt, but I, you know, boxing history has a way of getting more and more colorful and fanciful as time goes on. Right. And even Jess Willard himself was like, "Look, I wasn't really that badly hurt. I'm fine. You know, I, I, I you know, I'm good." You know, and but there were people who said, yes, definitely he got some teeth knocked out because back then they didn't really wear the kind of mouthpieces we wear today. I mean, they may not have worn mouthpieces at all, let alone any mouthpiece. Not until um, Ted Kid Lewis, yeah. So, so you know, did he get some teeth knocked out? There's there's verification in the newspaper reports that yes, he did. Was his face, you know, crushed and broken bones and broken ribs the way they say? I don't think so. No, there's there's no real evidence of that. Um, was his face, you know, pulpy and, and a bit bloodied up? Yes. I mean, he's getting hit by, you know, a massive puncher who's wearing, you know, five or six ounce gloves and getting just teed off on. So, you know, these things happen. But, you know, it wasn't anything that, like, you know, you needed reconstructive surgery for or anything like that. Why do you think uh, Jack Del Kearns, his manager, by the way, when did Kearns and Dempsey, when and where did they hook up? It appears to be somewhere in 1917. I'd say, you know, early to mid 1917 um, is when Kearns uh, and he started working together. I think Kearns loaned him some money and basically said, hey, I think you've got some potential. You need to, you know, you need to work on some of the things, you know, polish up your offense, work on some of your defense. But I think you got real raw potential and, you know, let's work together. And eventually they did. And before him, he had a sketchy guy in New York, John the Barber Riesling, who tried to set him up with a fight with uh, Sam Langford. And can you tell us about that, how he, Dempsey skipped out on that? Well, you know, that's another interesting thing. Um, I'm not so sure that's true. Um, okay. Um, there, Dempsey claimed it in his final autobiography, but he never claimed it before that. And the, the, autobi the autobiographies he did you know, years earlier, didn't mention Langford. Um, he, he, he mentioned other guys. And in fact, even, even the other guys he mentioned may not have been the true guys that he was considering uh, being put in with. Um, if you look at the actual primary source newspaper reports of who Riesler was looking to put him in with, it's not, Lang it's not Langford. It was guys like Frank Moran and, um, 
Ed Gunboat Smith, and actually the the the, the most likely uh, guy. Um, well, you'll read my book. Yes, absolutely. And and um, uh, I look forward to reading that. You know, but, but what you're saying, you you bring up a very good point that that um, this lost you for a sec here in the screen, but. Um, Dempsey, I mean, in boxing, that happens all the time where things get embellished. So it's frustrating sometimes because you're not sure what the actual truth is, which is what's so great about your books is that you, you know, you're able to clear it up and get the actual factual thing. Oh, we got you back, Adam. Okay. Yeah. So what you're saying about about that, how, how boxing gets embellished over the years, um, I have to tell you a, a short, quick story. Um, when I was at the Hall of Fame, I was in the lunchroom once with Angelo Dundee, my mentor, and we're walking out with Carmen Basilio and Carmen sees um, Emil Griffith and, and, uh, and just says to him, get out of the way, Nancy boy. And Griffith takes a swing at Basilio and hits Angelo. Basilio takes a swing at Griffith and hits Angelo. And by the time we got outside the building, it was Griffith or Basilio used the N-word. These guys squared off and had a fight, you know, were fighting for 10 minutes. It was like a four-second thing. So I can well understand what you're saying about the fact that, you know, things like that get embellished over time. So it's not even likely then, I guess, that Langford was one of his potential opponents, but he said after that, that was the guy that he feared. Was that just to, why would he say something like that to to assuage his guilt at not fighting black fighters? Or is it just, he was just a kind person that way? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can always speculate on what's in a, a person's mind, but you know, obviously at that point, Lankford was passed. He knew, Dempsey knew Lankford was a great fighter. And yeah, Dempsey, you know, could sometimes be humble and self-effacing. And back then, it was a much more lauded quality to, to be humble. And uh, I could see Dempsey just saying something like that, like, "Oh, you know, I was I was afraid of of Sam Langford, uh, you know." Because Lang- he he was the one who took Langford to that night for Langford, I think, at the Polo Grounds or Yankee Stadium. He was the one that escorted him in, but he certainly saw Langford fight. Yeah, you know, you know, we'll, we'll think, say something about Sam Langford. Is Sam Langford was very high on Dempsey as well during his career. Usually, when they interviewed Sam Langford about Dempsey, he said very nice things about about Dempsey, and he would say, you know, Dempsey, Dempsey's the best in the world. He'll beat anyone, and maybe that also may have influenced Dempsey on saying nice things about Langford years later because Langford was very high on Dempsey. Well, this brings up an interesting fact: the Harry Wills fight that never happened. Dempsey, and you know better than anyone feasted on taller fighters and it really was Kearns that didn't want to fight do you think Dempsey would have gone through the fight against Wills it's hard to believe he would have had any fear of Wills at that stage in Wills career or any stage because he did great against taller fighters well that's an internal debate about um and that that you're gonna have to read the book the two books on that uh, I'm working on the third now um if you read the books you're going to get a lot of different perspectives on 
who avoided who and why and what thwarted that fight and was Dempsey afraid, was Kearns afraid, was Rickard afraid, was it politics, et cetera, was it economics? There's a lot to it. It's, it's, I'm going to, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a, you know, I'm going to lay it all out, the pros, the cons, the arguments for, against every argument. And I just basically let the reader decide what, what they think the truth is. Well, there was a Canadian magazine in the seventies, which it still have had an article on Larry Gaines and Gaines apparently was brought in for a day or two to be a sparring partner. And Doc Kern said to him, if you were white, uh, I'd drop Dempsey and go with you, which I, I don't believe for a second that he said. But but um, they said that, you know, guys like Gaines and other black fighters are kept away from Dempsey. But I, I just find it hard to believe because unlike Sullivan, who didn't fight, they only fought white guys, and there were great fighters, Peter Jackson, at his time. Dempsey, skill level-wise, was so far, wouldn't you agree, was so far above everyone else? Well, that's tough to say. I mean, do I think his skill level was so far above everyone else? Not necessarily, but I think he had a certain brand of speed and po explosive power that even if he was less skilled than some of his opponents, it didn't matter. You know, as soon as he hit him, it was over. Right. It's like that old saying that gets credited to Tyson, but I was told that Lewis said it first, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. I mean, Dempsey smart defensively though as well because after the Schmeling first Schmeling fight he went to Lewis's camp and showed him what he could do in certain situations I mean Dempsey had a brand, a brand of skill set that was tailored to, for effectiveness for him to be effective given his talents and his style you know he he may not have been the most brilliant defensive specialist in the world but he had a good brand of defense he had forward he had side at side forward he had good head movement, side to side, have, you know, turns and dips and weaves to where when people would hit him, they weren't hitting him as effectively. Plus he had also had an iron jaw, right. but you know, back then it was more about effectiveness, not about necessarily just point scoring. It was about doing damage and, and, and we, are you going to knock a guy out eventually? And so like James J. Jeffries, who also said, look, I, you know, I get hit. Sure. I get hit, but I make sure they don't hit me in a place where it's going to get me, you know, knock me down or not, or stop me. So he knew how to hit, get hit and roll and ride with punches, but then slide forward off of that and then come at his opponent and hit him, hit him right back. And he'd actually use them throwing a punch as a way to open themselves up for his counterattack as he's aggressively moving forward. And that's something that also Mike Tyson was very good at. He was a specialist at it, and people appreciated it. And that's a lost art in today's boxing for a lot of fighters. Yep, and also Marciano. Marciano was great at it. Joe Frazier was great at it. So, you know, to lessen the impact of the punch by rolling with the punch. Yes. There's some fighters recently, though, like James Tony and Bud Crawford, who are almost like a throwback to that era in terms of their defensive skill. Yeah. I mean, you know, look at every, every era has got great fighters. So, you know, uh, we can debate about whether they were better back then or they're better now. But the truth is, every era has got some great fighters that there's some great fighters from yesteryear could fight today. And there's some great fighters today that could fight in yesteryear. And you just have to adapt to the different conditions. But great fighters are great fighters and they find ways to win. With Dempsey, I've read so many times, the name Rachel Solomon has come up. That was his paternal grandmother. 
Is that correct? I don't know. Oh, okay. It said he had Jewish blood in him, that his father's mother or grandmother was Rachel Solomon. But I've never seen any proof of that. I've just heard the name uh, the name mentioned. No, I'm not aware of that. Oh, okay. As, as far as I'm aware, John Sullivan was Irish, of Irish ancestry, as, as far as I know. Okay. Uh, like the original Jack Dempsey. Oh, well, you know, so, I mean, who are we talking about? Are we talking about Sullivan, or are we talking about... Oh, no, no, we're talking about Jack Dempsey. Oh, Jack Dempsey? Um, there was a rumor that he did, but I, I don't know that that was ever proven. Um, I think Dempsey had... Uh, more of the Irish, European. Um, he had a touch of, of Native American as well on both sides. Um, but I'm not aware of anything that would demonstrate that he had any, any uh, Jewish ancestry. Okay. Um, would you say that Dempsey's greatest victory was to fight with Furpwell or to fight with uh, Willard or another fight? In other words, when you look back, the most amazing comeback or not comeback excuse me fight his most amazing victory would would it be the willard because he was the underdog or would it be furpo because furpo dropped him and then knocked him out of the ring people thought it was finished at that time or another fight perhaps i mean i think it's just his totality of work is is you know he mowed down most of the top contenders in 1918 and you know was destroying them and and people you just admired and appreciated what he was doing because he's fighting guys with 50, 60, 70, you know, pro fights and stopping them in one or two rounds. So people, you know, couldn't even believe their eyes. And yeah, Willard was a huge, strong guy. And even after like several years off after the Dempsey fight, Willard came back and won some, you know, good fights and, uh, you know, proved that he was a pretty tough guy. Um, and even, in, even in losses, you know, showed he was, he was a real fighter. Um, so that was a big fight. I mean, at the time, the Carpentier fight was huge. Carpentier, sure, you know, look at uh, nowadays we, we talk about how great a fighter is and then they go and lose a fight and we talk about, oh, they were overrated. They were nothing. You know, just because you lose a fight doesn't mean you're not a really good fighter. Um, Carpentier was a really good fighter. He was very well respected. And, you know, before the fight, a lot of people thought he had a legitimate chance of beating Dempsey just because Dempsey mowed through him doesn't mean he wasn't a heck of a fighter. So, you know, the, the, the right hands that and hooks that Carpentier hit Dempsey with in the, in the second round, nine times out of 10 in his career, Carpentier would, would have scored a knockout. You know, most of the guys he hit like that, he dropped. And he, if he couldn't drop Dempsey, Dempsey had an iron jaw. But does that mean that, you know, Carpentier wasn't a heck of a fighter? You know, no. He was, you know, it was that you, you don't generate a, the first million dollar gate because people think it's a total mismatch. Some people did, but people yeah. were very intrigued by the fight. Well, he, Carpentier yeah. killed, killed, but knocked out Ted Kid Lewis in one round. And Lewis was a great fighter. And and Carpentier got there first. Didn't Carpentier break his right hand on, on Dempsey's jaw? Yes, he did. So, but I don't think that it would have changed the result even if he hadn't broken his hand. Well, and was it true Dempsey used to soak his hands in beef brine and chew pine tar gum and for his jaw, just he did all these things that fighters don't do today to toughen his chin up and and toughen his skin up on his hands. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of those things may be of, of questionable effectiveness, but, you know, yeah, he did a lot of that kind of stuff.
Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Bud Schulberg said that uh, in the Willard fight, he was in a dressing room for, he was only eight to 10 years old. That's his father, but he said Willard's trainer was there and he said that Willard said, uh, the trainer said that Dempsey's wraps and gloves were kosher, they were fine. And you see him entering the ring, there's photos of him with just the wraps. Word was just, just saying that his hands were plastered Paris. Gil Clancy told me one time that's ridiculous because he said, if you had plaster of Paris, you couldn't lift your hands. And if you did and hit somebody, you'd break every bone in your hand. Did this, where did this come about? Was this just Kearns trying to make money for that? Or was it Willard looking to save face for such a bad beating? Well, Willard's not even the one that came up with that claim. It was it was made by some people that may not have even seen the fight, but they just couldn't believe. You know, they read stories about how badly Willard had been, you know, beat up. And they couldn't believe that he could only, be, you know, be stopped in three rounds. And so, you know, they said, well, he must have had loaded loaded gloves. But, they, you know, they didn't stop and think about the fact that Dempsey was an explosive puncher, fast starter, been mowing through the whole heavyweight division quickly. And Willard hadn't fought in three years, so he probably wasn't at his absolute sharpest. And so Dempsey did what Dempsey does. And the truth is, Dempsey came into the ring without his gloves on. He had his wraps on. So everyone, he was right there for everyone to examine his wraps. Um, there's there's, there's uh, article, primary source articles that indicate that Dempsey's wraps were examined by Willard's seconds. Willard himself shook Dempsey's wrapped hands in the Right. You know. So I think it's, this is a total myth, uh, but people just sort of speculated like, oh, he couldn't have done that to Willard unless he had loaded wraps. And so, you know, and even Jimmy DeForest years later, his trainer said, you know, that, yeah, that loaded wrap story is just total garbage. If anything, that would have made Dempsey's hands heavier. And that's not what we were trying to do to beat Willard. We weren't trying to beat him with power. We we're trying to beat him with speed and, we, and, and to weight his hands down with, you know, something heavy like plaster. That's, that would have been counterproductive. So, so that's not something we would have ever, you know, thought of doing at all. And we didn't need to. I have to tell you, my father would go to the Canadian National Exhibition in Toronto every year. And in the 1960s, Willard would come up every year and he'd be in a booth and he'd give a talk. This is 63, 64. And he would, he would take, my father spoke to him for like 30 seconds, but he had a piece of barbed wire and he said, this is what Dempsey had in his gloves. And my father said, which really annoyed Willard, I thought it was plaster of Paris. And Willard didn't like that. He just turned away. And then years later, Jack Duck Kearns say uh, in Sports Illustrated, he got paid to say that the gloves were in fact loaded because he needed the money. Yeah. So, you know, like, yeah, people say things for money all the time and, and, you know, I don't think there's any any proof of, of, of that claim. And I think Kearns had some sour grapes towards Dempsey, um, which the books will go over, you know, the reasons why. But, uh, you know, ba back to your discussion of Dempsey's great fights with Furpo, um, you know, it was a phenomenal fight. It was considered like the best fight of all time at the time that Dempsey beat Furpo because it was just an awesome war. They just basically just went to town on each other, slugging away with bombs. And it was just a nonstop slugfest and people just love the fight you know both of them down multiple times and it made Dempsey bigger than ever so you know maybe that should be considered his greatest 
victory. I don't know, but it was certainly his most exciting, and, and it, it garnered him tremendous respect. And anyone who suspected that Dempsey loaded his gloves didn't believe it after that because they saw what they did. He did a huge, you know, strong furpo. Um, and and even Jess Willard after that fight, he said, "Yeah, now I see how Dempsey did what he did to me," because basically he just witnessed Dempsey do to furpo what he did to Willard. In fact, Willard lasted longer than Furpo did. Furpo got knocked out in, you know, the first minute of the second round. Dempsey actually went three, I'm sorry, Willard actually went three full rounds with Dempsey. So yeah. that fight kind of showed Willard something where he's like, yeah, I get it now. This guy is just, you know, just an explosive fast starting guy. And you can't, you know, he, he just, you just can't avoid him. And he's going to hit you with bombs. Yeah. I, 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 that's one of the great things about your book, because I did not know that Willard had said that about after the Furpo fight. But one of the things that came out of the Furpo fight was the fact that Furpo said that he should have won because Dempsey was out of the ring for seconds and you're supposed to get back into the ring uh, under your own ability without the help of whoever, the writers at this point, push him back in. Was that rule in place at that time in boxing in New York? So, well, the facts are dis disputed. Um, most of the writers said Dempsey beat the 10 count. Um, in fact, the films make it appear that he got in there like almost instantly. Like he was with, and, and a lot of the writers also said he got back within like four to five seconds. It was like he went out and he just climbed right back on in. So, and there's some people that try to make, you know, look at, there's a lot of yellow, yellow journalism. People like to make, you know, uh, fanciful stories and good copy and try to create controversy that sells papers. But the vast majority of the writers said uh, he got in back in the ring pretty quickly. There was some debate about whether he had any assistance. Some people said he had aid. Some people said he didn't. Uh, some people said it was more like Dempsey falling, falling into the laps of writers and, and writers sort of putting their arms out and trying to like push him off of them because right. he'd sort of fallen into, into their faces and, it's more like an act of self-preservation, but like the, the the fact is, mm -hmm. grabbing the ropes, climbing back on through, getting back into the ring, and and continuing on immediately, pretty quickly. Okay, yeah, that that it's interesting to me of the scenario of uh, the first Cooper Ali fight or Clay fight. And everyone says, you know, Cassius Clay had four minutes or half an hour to recover. But I saw an interview of Henry Cooper. He said he got an extra 15 seconds, maybe 20 at the most. So people, you know, over time, it's he had a half an hour. He had a week and a half in the Bahamas. But it's it's Cooper said, no, he said Muhammad had 10, 15 seconds. That was the difference. That that's all it took. So, you know, as you're saying, this yellow journalism that um, uh, you know that keeps popping up. One thing I wondered about Dempsey is, in looking back at the mob's control of boxing, they didn't really get into it before his Carpanche fight because the money wasn't worth it to them. But only the killer Madden from '23 on really controlled boxing. And how did Dempsey circumvent that? Was that through Kearns? Because Kearns was definitely connected with the mob. Because you could see that with his when he had Mickey Walker and Archie Moore. 
how did, how did Dempsey, was he able to go out on his own and not be affected by them? Or was he affected by them? Um, I'm not aware of any uh, mob uh, uh, affiliation in his career at all. Uh, I'm not, I've not seen any primary source evidence uh, for it. I, I, okay. So I've read that Capone came to him, but those stories are apocryphal. I mean, Capone came and offered to fix the fight for him and with Tunney and Capone this and, and that, but there's no real evidence, I guess. Apparently, Boo Boo, the Philly gangster, was the one who got the fight, along with uh, Russell Peltz told me um, Taylor, I think it was. Is it Herman Taylor, the promoter from Philly that helped move the fight to Philly from New York, the, the Tunney fight, because he wouldn't fight wills so they had the new york state athletic commission would let him fight there okay well now you're getting into my third book which hasn't been published okay. yet but uh that's all going to be discussed in the third book yeah so boo boo hoff was a character in uh, that was uh, somewhat perhaps involved in the first dempsey tunney fight and um, to be continued there yeah there there's there was a little controversy over that and that's going to be discussed in the third book. Um, that, that it was more vis-a-vis -vis Tunney than Dempsey was was Hoff's involvement in the fight. Right. That, that Hoff allegedly had a contract with Tunney, and there wound up being some litigation and and some controversy in the newspapers over that. He lent the money. Well, there that was the dispute. Did he owe the money? Right. So I think what we'll, um, when we get at him back, I think one of the things we can do is mention that the phone, if he could turn his phone off sleep mode, um, that, that would be good. But it, when, what I heard was the fact that, that um, yeah, your phone goes on sleep mode, I think. Sorry about That's that. What's we, happening. We got no, or something. Well, oh, okay. It just says here your phone's going on sleep mode, so I'm not sure. Okay, um, right. uh, yeah, so, uh, I mean, who knows? I know Roger Kahn wrote that the mob was involved, but Bert Sugar said to me, that's completely false. The fight was on the level, and Dancy just didn't listen. So this brings up the other question, which will be in your third book. Dempsey said that if he had gone to the neutral corner in the second fight, the Battle of the Long Count, immediately, that he believes Tony would have beaten the count. Was that him being modest? Or did he really, it's hard to believe he really believed that. Well, that was the big debate. And, you know, it helped make Den Dempsey more of a legend because people thought he got robbed. And a lot of the people, the big Dempsey fans were like, yeah, if, you know, if, if it, there hadn't been a long count, Dempsey would have knocked him out, finished him off, and he would have regained the championship. And it helped, you know, create some Dempsey lore and aura, you know, and, and sometimes when people think you've been wronged in some way, you can kind of ride off into the sunset even bigger than you were before. Sort of like, you know, a lot of people thought George Foreman deserved to beat Shannon Briggs, and sort of that's his last fight, and he kind of rode off into the sunset with a lot of people on his side feeling that he should have still been champion and got robbed or whatever. But 
I mean, the truth is, do I really think he was going to stop Tunney, even if, you know, the count had been four or five seconds less? Uh, no, I don't. Not ba not based on what I've seen on the films. And in fact, there again, this is you're going into my third book now, which hasn't been published yet. But uh, stay tuned. There's there's more there's more to that long count than meets the eye. And I think Dempsey was inevitably going to give Tunney some extra time because there's a lots of different ways that Dempsey kind of screwed that one up. But we'll talk about that later. Right. Okay. I was gonna I was just gonna mention Dave Barry because the thing was. He had done work for Bubelhoff and it's, you know, and I know this is your third book coming up, but it mentions how, you know, when Dempsey goes down in the eighth round, Barry's right there to start to count. He doesn't tell Tony to go to neutral corner, but I, I, it's just hard to believe that was deliberate. It seems more that was just human reaction. Well, I mean, there's different ways of looking at that. Um, you have to understand that one, there is a neutral corner rule, but there isn't a mandatory eight count like we have today. Right. So as soon as you get up, the fight immediately resumes. So some some might say that Dempsey was foolish for getting up so quickly because yes, he went down, but he got he got up within a second. So by getting up within a second, it kind of like I think it threw Barry off because the question is, does he send him to the neutral corner roll? You know, send him to the neutral corner and cease counting or suspend the count the way he did with Tunney. But then again, why do I need a count? Dempsey's now up. Let's just let the fight resume. Right. So there's that moment of you know, he was kind of coming in and then he kind of just decided to back away and let the fight resume because there's no mandatory eight count. Right. That's a great point. So in that sense, Dempsey's his own worst enemy. Because Yeah. So the real question would be is if Dempsey had stayed down, would Barry have forced, would he have suspended the count and forced Tunney to go to the neutral corner for, before taking up the count? And we'll never know. Exactly. Now, I've read various accounts, excuse me, of Dempsey when he fought fireman Jim Flynn and got knocked out, that he was starving. He had to walk five or 10 miles to the to the arena or to the city for the fight. But his wife at the time, Maxine, who was a prostitute, said that he had thrown the fight. Hard to believe Dempsey would throw the fight, but maybe if he was starving enough, perhaps. But when they had the rematch, he had no problem with Flynn. Do you think Dempsey threw that fight? Um, that's a, an eternal debate. Um, I put forth the arguments for him throwing the fight and, and, and against him throwing the fight. And, you know, I kind of let the readers decide. Um, great. Well, that's one of the many great things about your book, right? That you let the readers decide. You give them the truth and these facts and they, and, and they decide. Do you think personally that he threw the fight or are you just presenting the facts and saying you decide? Um, so I present the facts of what, what makes it look like a legit knockout. And I also present the facts of a lot of different people who were there said that that fight was fixed. Um, including his own wife who said he fixed the fight while she was still married to him. It wasn't like she said it years later after she was divorced from him. She was still his wife and it was two months after the fight. Um, she was going to a, new, a San Francisco newspaper writer saying my husband threw that fight. Um, so, you know, but Dempsey at the time said, no, I didn't. She's just upset at me, you know, for various reasons. And she's just trying to hurt me. Um, but years later, there's interviews with a lot of people involved with the fight that they that they had information before the fight that, that it was fixed. And and 
and there's allusions to potentially Dempsey, you know, in, a, in his own way, admitting that he had fixed the fight, that he, he regretted doing it, but he, he did it for the money because he was so poor and his family was in, in dire, dire straits at the time and he had to come up with some money, you know, quickly and he was offered you know, a good amount of money for him um, at the time to do it. What would be his wife's motivation for saying that? Is it because she was divorcing him at the time or? No, they didn't actually get divorced for another almost two years. Okay. Uh, but they were separated. Um, I think there, you know, there may have been brief un reunifications at various times. Um, the second book, In the Ring with Jack Dempsey, part two, 1919 to 1923, goes into that a lot. A lot, of, a lot came out in the newspapers at the time of uh, Dempsey's uh draft dodging uh, trial. And, uh, you know, while those par charges, criminal charges were pending, the newspapers did more investigation. They found a lot about, about her. They, they found out a lot about the allegations that she made against him, as well as the, uh, the allegation regarding the fixed fight against Jim Flynn. Things came out in the papers at that time in 1920, uh, which was, you know, two to three years later. Uh, but and also she testified at the trial, which, you know, some salacious details came out in the papers previous to that. And um, even during the trial, that's when it came out that she basically admitted under oath that she was a prostitute. Um, yeah, I mean, it's all in the book. I don't want to spoil it. You know, you're making me spoil right. my own book here. Well, it's a huge book. I mean, I don't, I don't think you can spoil it. You're just wetting people's appetites for, I mean, Dempsey was branded a slacker because he was wearing the patent leather shoes in that famous photo in a, in a um, shipyard. But Dempsey really wasn't a slacker. I mean, his family was, were his dependents. He had to support them. Wasn't that correct? Well, so at, at the time, there were various exemptions uh, from military service. And um, yeah, he claimed those exemptions and they, they granted his exemption. Uh, years later, <clears throat> Various people were just still upset that he hadn't voluntarily joined. And his wife said he was a slacker and had in, engaged in a conspiracy to avoid the draft. That got, you know, that led to criminal charges against him <clears throat> for which he was acquitted. Uh, in fact, once the case was given to the jury, they acquitted him very quickly. Um, he had a pretty solid defense. And, um, you know, uh, I go into the trial, you know, at great length and you'll see what the testimony was. You'll see what the evidence was and you can make up your own mind. But even though he was found not guilty, uh, people don't realize this is because we're talking about what a great big figure Dempsey is, and how, how beloved he is. At the time, he was not beloved. Um, he was thought of as, as a draft dodger and a slacker for years, even after he, he was acquitted. He was actually kind of a, a, a loathed figure. Even though people loved watching him fight, there was this inter interesting dichotomy or an oxymoron or you know, whatever you want to call it, where they loved watching him fight and he was, his fight because they saw him as a, as a draft dodger. So they wanted to see right. him live. And you know, so he never really kicked that, that, that image. It's, it's an interesting thing because at, at that time, around that era, Fatty Arbuckle was acquitted for uh, Virginia Rapay, I think it was, or whatever her name was. He was accused of raping, and they admitted, Rapay and her handler admitted they 
did this to a lot of other men. They were uh, accused him that Arbuckle was in the hotel suite, but was not in her room and actually had never met her. Yet it ruined her career. The people didn't care. And like you're saying, this followed Dempsey, although, you know, it looks like perhaps it wasn't true, but I guess people today don't understand the fact how big, you know, this was the first big, the war to end all wars. So for Dempsey not to participate, I guess, being the heavyweight champion of the world, while other people had to, would have been looked on askance by so many people. And, and that's something that the book hits on, uh, is just how upset people were at Dempsey for not going into the military. I mean, it was a, like this theme throughout the book. There's a, a lot of saltiness and bitterness towards him. Even at the same time, they liked him personally and they loved his style. They, they really, it really bothered a lot of people that he hadn't, hadn't joined up in the military. It's sort of like, it kind of gives you a little moment of pause to understand why Muhammad Ali slash Cassius Clay was so loathed at the time in the, in, in the 60s when he, he wouldn't join up. And, and, you know, I guess if you really want to see just how America, you know, saw that patriotism as very important as the heavyweight champion or a top contender joining up voluntarily, it was such a big deal to them. You could kind of look at Dempsey's life and career and that's sort of a harbinger of, of how loathed Ali was uh, for not joining. And because they really disliked Dempsey, a lot of people did because he didn't voluntarily join. Uh, regarding that photo you mentioned <clears throat> with the, uh, the leather, patent leather shoes, that was, that was obviously not him working. Um, so, so one of the ways you got around working, uh, being in the military, uh, there was a, something called a work or fight order that if you're not fighting, you had to be working in an essential industry that was that would help towards the war, and so, you know, one of the things you could do would be to like be a welder or you know, work building ships or something of that nature. And so, one of his claims was that's what he was doing. When the reality is, if he did do that, it was probably very limited in time. Um, he really was just a professional boxer at the time, but. In his defense, he said that the military had asked him to do that for recruiting purposes. So they staged these photos at the military's request. And he said, I look, whatever they asked me to do, I did. They asked me to stage these photos because he was a top, top contender uh, at the time. And that, that would help garner publicity for the, the recruitment, war effort recruitment. And so he, these po photos were posed, but it wasn't at his request. It was at the military's request. He did it for them. You know, and he also argued that um, he was uh, donating a lot of his purses. That's another thing that people don't want to sort of acknowledge about him is he worked, he fought for free a lot of times. He donated several of his purses, um, you know, and he fought for nothing, uh, so including including against Willie Meehan, the fight that he lost the four round decision. Um, he said he was injured going into that fight, but because he was doing it to earn money for the military and for the soldiers and sailors relief fund he didn't want to pull out of the fight even with a badly injured hand he was actually his hand was actually broken going into the fight and um he said look this is this is for the military i want to make them money and it wound up making you know generating well over twenty thousand dollars that he, he didn't make a dime off of that Which so you know he, yeah he had a lot of good arguments on his on his side it's like hey i still did my part well it's yeah it, it's interesting when you look at it sort of relates to joe lewis because lewis under different circumstances, but he volunteered immediately 
to go into the army, I guess, which is why a lot of, you know, part of his team, part of Lewis's Roxborough and, and Black and, and uh, Jacobs, they were made sure that Lewis volunteered right away because they're always looking out for Lewis's image to make sure that, you know, this was a, a patriotic, loyal American. But you bring up a fantastic point with Jack Dempsey that, I mean, in the Second World War, he volunteered. I believe he volunteered and was in Okinawa, and 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 uh, it, it apparently, from what I understand, Angelo told me, and Ferdy Pacheco, Muhammad's doctor, who met Dampson when he was young, but he couldn't say anything to him because he was so starstruck. He couldn't. He tried to talk. He couldn't get the words out. Said that it really, even in his later years, it bothered Dempsey that he was called a slacker. That the, he never really got over the hurt of that because he said it just wasn't true. Yeah, many years later in the in World War II, he joined the Coast Guard, and I think that was, you know, psychologically, I think his way of of saying, "Hey, I want to do my part." Because yeah, I think it did always bother him those accusations. Now this this is sort of a silly question because it's been asked about everyone, but did Hollywood ruin Jack Dempsey, Estelle Taylor, who? Jack Doc Kearns did not like. Kearns just wanted to keep Dempsey on the straight and narrow, just keep fighting, keep making money. Did he, you know, he had three years off. Did that was I guess that was really what. That really hurt him, hurt, hurt him career wise and skill wise because he didn't really care at that point. Yeah, I mean that again. That's going to be my third book on Dempsey, oh, okay. and I'm going to in in great detail what was going on not only in Dempsey's life and career during the three years that he was sitting on the shelf and not fighting, but also what's going on in boxing and the world and with other contenders, you know, Harry Wills, Gene Tunney, Harry Greb, all of them, you know, what's cool. I'm going to paint the picture for everyone. and You all can make a decision about what, what ruined Dempsey, you know, but at the end of the day, we all have to take personal responsibility for our own decisions. But, you know, there's reasons, there's a lot of reasons for why he, he sat out as, as long as he did and I'll lay it out there and you can, you can decide what you want to believe. I know that um, there's several, several times where, when they're all having dinner together and currents verbally laid into Estelle Taylor, Chris Dundee said, if that was my wife and someone had done that, I'd kill them. You don't talk to someone's wife like that, but Kearns was what I guess Frazier called the scambuga. He, he was a rogue, but he was successful. He knew how to get along in the boxing business. Is it true that he served a summons to Dempsey while Dempsey was in the ring? I, it wasn't while he was in the ring, but it was it was before the the uh, first Tunney fight that yes, he did sue him um, for his share of the of the purse, and uh, that was you know Dempsey had to deal with a, a bunch of litigation before the uh, the uh, first Tunney fight, which again the book goes into right it, it's it, you know it's hard to believe when you read about it that from what i've read and correct me if i'm wrong if it's true or not that the purse would be paid to the manager to kearns and he give dempsey his purse but often he considered the whole thing his money and he would gamble it away or whatever and give them parcel the money out to dempsey and wasn't there a point where tex rickard just said, you, you know, you're getting screwed here. You so Dempsey would take the money and then Rick or Kearns would be furious, but Dempsey would say, there's no reason to be furious. You're getting your percentage as agreed. 
I mean, you know, that's, that's tough to answer. I mean, I, you know, Dempsey and Kearns for many years operated without a written contract. They, they basically had a pretty darn good amicable relationship from 1917 all the way through, you know, past 1923, 1924. Um, obviously that changed, but they, they got along well enough that uh, they didn't even need a contract. Um, they, they were operating on a 50, 50 split, which today we would. I don't think a 50, 50 split. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. We lost you. So you said they were operating on a 50, 50, they were operating on a 50, 50 split. And at some point they signed uh, before the FERPO fight, they, the New York state athletic commission, uh, forced them to to sign and file a formal contract. And, uh, the, but they would not allow uh, a split greater than uh, a third. They would only allow a, a manager to make a third. A thirty-three and a third percent was the was the legal maximum in New York. So they filed a contract, a written contract, for Kearns uh, to get a third. And there's more. There's more to the story on that as well, which will be mostly covered in the third book. So, in other words, when these stories come out, you're just hearing the headlines. You're not hearing the story behind it, which is the great thing about your book. And one reason why so many people, especially Thomas Hauser, loves your book is you're giving the full story. You're telling exactly from all points of view what happened. I, I try to, you know, if, if I can, I try to I try to come at it from from multiple different angles and perspectives. You know, I try to get multiple primary sources uh, if I can and, and to give different perspectives and let the reader decide what they what they think is the truth. Do you, it's a tricky question, I guess, but you obviously have your own opinion, but you don't reveal that to the readers. In other words, you want them to decide on their own. Well, I mean, look at, there's always going to be what the author thinks is the truth. And right. I think that's gonna, you know, potentially, even if on a subconscious level, it's gonna, it's gonna maybe come through, if not overtly, if uh, potentially subtly. Um, but you know there's some times where i'm not really sure myself and i'm just gonna i mean even if i am sure i'm still gonna put the other side just because it makes it a fun story and, and it also shows people what was being said at the time you know i mean like we can watch a fight today and like 90 percent of us think someone won the fight and 10 percent think the other guy won but i mean do we just completely omit the 10 percent, or do we still say hey there was some people said that said this so right. i try to do that say hey look the vast majority said this here's a sampling of the people who who said this about the fight, but there's a, a minority opinion and, you know, much fewer said this, but, but here it is. Here's what the minority opinion uh, said. And I would still give a sample of that. Um, the fights with more controversy where you've got a greater split, you know, half people or 60% say one way, 40% say the other or 55, 45, then I'm going to have a lot greater sampling of here's all the people that said, this guy won. Here's all the people that said this guy won, and I'll give samplings of why they said this guy won or why this guy this guy won, and and I'll let the reader you know make their own conclusion of. But you know, even if you if we can't see the fight by reading about all the different perspectives on the fight, you can kind of get a general gist of how the fight went down. What were the strengths and the weaknesses of the of the different fighters? What were the judges looking at? If a judge looked for this, they'd kind of lean towards this guy. If you look for this kind of quality they lean towards this guy. And, and, and just like today, we see a fight and you can have a, a divergence of opinion on, on, a, on a, a judge's decision. Right, well, uh, 
you know, uh, a couple weeks ago, the George Cambosis Maxi Hughes fight, and people were outraged that Cambosis won. Um, I thought Hughes won, but but Angelo told me a long time ago, if you watch a fight on TV, turn the sound off. You don't want to be influenced by the broadcasters. So, yeah. you know, ju judge it from that aspect. When you're looking at these myths, let's call them, over some fights from 100 years ago, Dempsey and, and Bob Fitzsimmons, Marvin Hart, Tommy Burns, are you also looking at it because you're a lawyer from a legal perspective? In other words, this is what they claim, but there's really no evidence. You can't say this because they're claiming it, but there's there's virtually no evidence to back up such an assertion. Yeah, because you know you get a lot of these sort of fanciful myths and legends and stories, but then the question is, what is the actual evidence? You know, and and what what do we believe the real truth is? And and is this is there something to back it up? So I try to look at you know the evidence. Yeah, from perhaps you know I find some of the legal aspects of of these stories to be interesting. And I, I like to try to uncover what the truth is to the extent possible, but you know, often there's shades of gray. And like I said, I'll I'll put forth multiple perspectives and you know let people figure out what they what they think is, is more likely to be true. Dempsey was also popular in Europe. I mean in England and France and Germany and it it, it just captured the world. Why was he able to do is it was it the knockouts, his ferociousness? that captured the imagination of the entire world? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, even though you couldn't legally transport films from state to state in the US, you could transport them overseas. So it's possible that many Europeans had seen more of Dempsey than, than a lot of Americans had, because uh, they could transport the films, copy them and put them in theaters and make a bunch of money that way. And he was exciting to watch. I mean, even now, if you watch some of his fights, they're fun to watch, even to this day. Like the guy's right. really exciting to watch. And same thing, like I said, like Mike Tyson, a hundred years from now, his fun, his fights will still be fun to watch. So, um, and also he also did movies, you know, so that also helped too. That was, you know, you know, back then the 1920s was, was, you know, they call it a roaring twenties for a reason, you know, like, movies were big back then and you know that's the era of charlie chaplin and buster keaton and people went to the movies a lot like there was no such thing as tv yet you, you had to go to the movies so he, you know D dempsey also did a lot of movies he did there's great photos of him with douglas fairbanks on his shoulder of charlie chaplin harry houdini and mary pickford so yeah i mean those photos went worldwide yeah, and that also goes towards you know what caused Dempsey to sit on the shelf is is the movie industries as part of the, was one of the you know part of the reasons of why he he's making a ton of money in the movies. Right. So it's like you know do you want to get a million dollars for acting or do you want to get you know less than that for getting hit in the head and maybe losing your crown potentially? So it's like you know it's, economics has a lot to do with it as well. Well, it's, it's easy to see that in a lot of in boxing throughout history. But also in other professions, Jim Carrey was a great stand-up, but then once he said, I started to get 20, 30 million a picture, I didn't want to go back on the road. Same as Steve Martin, why bother? I don't want to go out and tour and do these towns and, and have to put up with working in new material. And you look at Dempsey, I mean, it makes sense that he'd want to do that. He achieved his goal. He was the best heavyweight, the best fighter on the planet. 
Why, and, as you're saying, why bother going in to get more punches? And keep in mind also, like what you're to continue to answer your question about why Dempsey was so big in Europe is also because Europeans uh, goes back to the Carpentier fight. Is Europeans greatly admired Carpentier? I mean, he was very, very big in Europe. They'd seen him fight, you know, many, many times. His films had been, you know, his fights had been filmed. They'd been shown in Europe. He was very highly respected out there. And so when Dempsey mowed through him, that you know shot Dempsey's esteem up greatly in in Europe. Well, it's a question I have for you, and I guess you'll cover this in your third book. It's incredible how universally loved Dempsey was, especially by the people he fought. I mean, Carpentier loved him. Furpo gave him money, apparently, when he went to visit him in Argentina. He gave money to Billy Misk. He helped out Bill, paid for Bill Brennan's funeral. I mean, all the people that knew him in the sport and fought against him loved him. What was it about Dempsey that just, is it he was just such a kind, respectful person, or is it, was it his character? charisma or his personality? Yeah, I mean, that's also, you know, extensively covered in the book is like, just as a general, just a guy, uh, he was very well liked. He was very easygoing. Uh, you know, certain people have that personality where they just, people get along with him very well. And Dempsey was one of those guys that people seemed to like him. He seemed to like people. He was a people's kind of guy, like hanging out with people. You know, he was the kind of guy who would come up to you and how you doing and slap you on the back and, you know, chatted, chatted up with you. It was, it was very... Right. You know, certain fighters are, you know, gruff and standoffish and, and more introverted. And, you know, I mean, we are who we are, but Dempsey did have a certain magnetism and people liked him. I mean, even writers liked him. He, they, they said, you know, out of the ring, he's a really likable guy in the ring. He's an absolute monstrous brute and just a killer. But outside the ring, he's a really pleasant, likable guy. Yeah, Bert Sugar told me, I mean, it's one long story when he first came to New York in the 50s and he was looking in Dempsey's restaurant and he saw this big cutout poster of Dempsey and he couldn't believe it. And actually it was Dempsey. And he came to, came out and said, how you doing? Who are you? And he said, I just moved to New York. I want to be a boxing writer. And Dempsey said, come on in, I'll give you your first scoop. And so Ferdy Pacheco told me he was like that with everyone. He was just such a nice guy and so generous with people that uh, you couldn't help but love him. In fact, when Dempsey died, the reporter on this is a Toronto news station, a reporter who was in his 30s at the time, he didn't know Dempsey and may not have known of Dempsey, but he was in tears delivering the story, as so many were, because this was the guy that was just embraced by the world. He was really one of the best things. Would you agree that he you know, helped popularize the sport and really one of the best things about boxing was, was, the, was the character of Jack Dempsey, he was real Americana? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, Dempsey and, and promoter Tex Rickard, you know, they, they, they brought boxing to new heights in the 1920s, uh, you know, and it also like goes to the dichotomy we we're talking about. On one hand, Dempsey's loathes for not going into the military, but on a personal level, they really liked him. And that also reminds me of uh, Jack Johnson is like, you know, at the same time, this is the general society is hating him uh, for multiple reasons. A lot of the writers said on a personal level, the guy's a really cool guy and he's like easy to talk to and get along and he makes for great copy and he gives us, you know, good interviews and he's a writer's fighter. And, you know, so it's like interesting interplay between here's this really likable, nice guy, but, you know, at the same time garnering so much negative publicity for other reasons. And, and, and same thing with Ali. That was part of the interesting aspect of Ali is, 
you know, people, a lot of people loathed him for not going into the military, but at the same time, the guy was like really cool and fun and, and funny and playful and a writer's fighter. And, you know, so you've got all these different, you know, dichotomies of, of, you know, personality and, and, and intrigue and politics. And, but at the same time, you know, the negatives as well. You know, Ali, um, I was privileged because of Angela to meet him several times. And there's stories like this of him all, all over the world. But he would come, when he came to Toronto, uh, for various reasons, one of which he got most of his suits here. But, you know, in the, in the 70s or 80s, and even earlier, he, he would go to, there's only one or two boxing gyms left in Toronto. And he would go to the various boxing gyms at that time and stay for hours and talk to people. And four or five years ago, maybe, uh, Floyd Mayweather Jr. was here to see the Caravana Parade, the largest uh, Caribbean parade uh, and celebration in the world. And he asked around to speak at gyms, but he wanted 75 grand a pop to speak for an hour. And someone had said to him, you know, Ali did this for three, four hours for free. He didn't ask for money. And so it just shows you like, you know, you look at guys like Ali and Dempsey and, and people like that who went out of their way. And you mentioned Dempsey giving money to the military. I mean, Joe Lewis, the same thing, right? And was still taxed on it. So just, yeah. you know, not treated that well by, uh, uh, by the government. You, uh, with Tex Rickard, he had a very good relationship with Rickard. It seemed at one point, didn't he trust Rickard more than he trusted Kearns? Well, I mean, Rickard made him a lot of money. I mean, all of Dempsey's biggest paydays were with Rickard, and Rickard had a sterling reputation as a promoter. I mean, nowadays, a lot of promoters are criticized, but the reality is uh, promoters help make guys a lot of money. And Dex Rickard was a tremendous promoter. He generated a lot of income. Uh, Dempsey made tremendous money, you know, astronomical money, money had just never even been heard of. I mean... Just keep in mind, like, we're talking like less than a decade earlier, Jack Johnson was called, you know, greedy for demanding $30,000 a fight, you know, and, and Dempsey's making hundreds of thousands of dollars a fight. So it's just like, it just, the, the purses went up exponentially. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Tommy Burns was criticized for asking for 30 grand to fight Johnson, but he said he's the most dangerous opponent. So I should get the most for fighting against the most dangerous opponent. And people laugh because they thought before Hugh McIntosh paid it, but they thought no one's going to pay 30 grand. That's ridiculous. And, and what happened was part of why the purses kept going up and up and up is because every time they had these mega fights, they would generate a huge amount of money. And it turned out that the fighters weren't really being that greedy. They really generated so much money. The, the promoters still made great profit. Right. You know? And so the fighters would say, see, I told you so. Like, I got 30000 but you still made 100000 or whatever it was, you know. And so the, the, the demands would go up and up and up. But, you know, then the promoters also realized, hey, I could make a boatload of money, even if I'm paying this fighter a lot of money. Was it a shock to people when, to what extent was it a shock, I should say, when Rickard died in 1929? He wasn't that old. He was only in his 60s, I believe. Yeah, I mean, again, you're, you're going into my third book, man. Okay, sorry. I didn't know that. That's So, so 1919 to 1923 is the second book. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, Rickard died after Dempsey's career was over. 
right. but yeah, he he died he died before his time. But you know, you know, it's, it's too bad because he was just you know such a phenomenal promoter. But he had, like I said, he was he had this reputation of always coming through. He made his his promotions usually more often than not made really good money, and he always paid the fighters. You know, he had this sterling reputation. And that's also part of why Dempsey liked working with him. He would make a lot of money, and he knew he was going to get paid. Right, and and Rickard Promotions, as you mentioned, everyone's before, said that he made money for everybody. I mean, the people that own own you know the the concession stand, everyone made money off of Rickard Promotions. Yeah, I mean, these fights were often a big economic boom for for a lot of people. So you know, that's also why different cities would want these fights in their town. You know, uh, New York was a very attractive town because it was the most populous state in the nation. You know, I had a lot of money there, a lot of a lot of uh, dense population density, so you could generate a lot of money. But you know, other states started saying, you know, we want in on this act too, and and then, then you know, eventually you see how the Tunney fight got moved to Philadelphia, and, and then the second fight, the Tunney fight, was in Chicago, and because cities saw that these fights could be a boom, a boom for them. Right, and, and Rickard is known for that, but I mean, Rickard promoted a lot of great fights. Joe Gans battling Nelson fight. I mean, James Jeffries, Jack, Jack Johnson. So he was he was doing a lot more than, I mean, a lot for Dempsey, but he promoted a lot of truly great title fights. Yes, and you know, and of course, the interesting part of why Dempsey didn't fight Wills has to do with, you know, Rickard is one of the reasons. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons and the books go into it, but, you know, Rickard as the promoter of Johnson versus Jeffries was very cognizant of multiple factors. He was aware of the fact that there was nationwide race riding after that fight. Um, a lot of violence, a lot of deaths, a lot of arrests. Uh, he was aware of the political crackdown after that fight on the sport of boxing all over the nation, you know, legal limitations, law enforcement limitations, regulation limitations. Um, he was also aware of the fact that um, boxing wasn't even legal in half of the, half of the nation. Right. I mean, and they, they were trying to make it legal. Uh, and that made it less so. That fight and its sort of aftermath made, made boxing's legality more questionable. Or, um, uh, and then he was also In 1912, Congress passed and the president signed into law the interstate uh, ban of, of, of transportation of fight films, which greatly limited uh, the economics of these fights because often you could make as much or more with the films than you could on the gate receipts. And so, you know, that was another fallout of the Johnson Jeffries fight. That, was, that fight was directly blamed for it all. Right. Didn't record say after that's the last time? It's not worth the grief and it, it interferes with making money. Just as you said, I'm just repeating what you said, that violence upsetting so many people just isn't worth it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think Rickard didn't really care that much about race as much as he cared about the dollars. And, right. and what, you know, and he saw that, yes, I could make money in a short run with John, you know, a Johnson Jeffries type fight, which he did. I mean, the fight, you know, made a lot of money. But what he realizes in the long run, uh, you make less money because of all the fallout that happens uh, thereafter. And so for a guy who's trying to make this his business long term and make a lot of money, 
if, if you want boxing to be legal, you want less regulation, you want the film, maybe the film anti prize fight film law to be repealed. Um, you can't do fights that are going to cause a lot of political fallout. Right. That's, you know, when, when you say that for some strange reason, I think of like Luciano and Al Capone where after the St. Valentine's day massacre, Luciano reamed them out, not reamed them out, but said, this is stupid. We're in business to make money. When you do these things, you get FBI, you get local and state authorities on us. No one works, no money coming in. And I guess from a boxing viewpoint, Rickard thought these interracial fights, it just, it hurts the sport, lessens the money we can make. It's just better we don't do it. I mean, that was one of his considerations. And it's, you know, I, like I said, a lot of his quotes, uh, are, are all in the book, you know, the, what he said to the newspapers as, as his, you know, regarding his reluctance to make Dempsey versus Wills. He was like, yes, on one hand, the fight will make a lot of money. On the other hand, I'm going to have to deal with a lot of problems. I may not even be able to make this fight because I don't think the politicians will let me make this fight. Right. You know? And he can, you know, he continually said that behind the scenes, the politicians were telling him uh, one way or the other, this, this fight's going to get thwarted, you know, and, and it, again, that's going to, be a part of the uh the third book but it's also gone into in the second book as well is because they're already talking about as soon as Dempsey wins the title it's it's already even at that point clear that the one guy out there that seems to be like the number one contender the guy who can most give Dempsey a good test is Harry Wills I mean Harry Wills had been avoided for many many years including by Jess Willard you know the, the three years that Jess Willard wasn't fighting everyone knew that Harry Wills was like the man to to give him a, a title, uh, a, a fight that would be great, but it was almost universally understood that he would never get a title shot. And and Will, Willard overtly drew the color line and said, "No, you know, now that I've beaten Johnson, we're going back to the way things used to be, which is uh, all white championship. We're not giving any black fighters any chance to win the championship." So he overtly drew the color line, and everyone sort of accepted it at the time because they didn't like Jack Johnson. And he was almost seen like as an experiment that people decided, no, we don't want it anymore. And so he, Jess Willard didn't get a lot of criticism for not fighting Harry Wills. But in, as time went on, people started getting a little more liberal minded and saying, you know what, this guy's this guy deserves a, a title shot. You know, he's a good fighter. He could test Dempsey, It'd be a great fight. We want to see this fight. He deserves it. And Wills also was personally well liked, too. They said, this guy's not a Jack Johnson you know, he's not going to cause the problems that Jack Johnson did. Let's, let's, you know, give him a chance. And there was, you know, some back and forth debate about, you know, whether the fight should be made or could be made. And, and, you know, that's all gone into not only in the second book, but, but the third book as well. How big was Wills? He was what, 6'4", 220? Yeah, there's, there's some debates about how tall he was, you know, some said 6'2", some said 6'3". Um, he was a tall, Probably in the neighborhood of like 210-ish, 210 to 215 it would be his normal right. uh, weight. I still have a hard time believing that he would have beaten. I, I mean, you know, lost to Kadan later on, but Dempsey feasted on tall guys. He just destroyed them. I just find, uh, find it hard to believe that Wills would have lasted against Dempsey. Well, you know, that's the, that's the great speculation for the ages. You can't really know what you don't know. Like, until you guys get in that ring, you really don't know what's going to happen. And, yeah, right. I mean, you, 
you can make some best guesses based on styles and strengths and weaknesses. But uh, I mean, let's face it: when when Wills was stopped by Escudone, he was a shot fighter. Um, you know, we're talking, you know, many years past his prime. Um, but you know, debate the debate about how that fight would go uh, existed. You know, even from 1919 to 1923, and and there thereafter as well. And I include that in the books about the people that said, "Hey, look, Wills Wills is a real dangerous test for Dempsey. He's got a lot of different." you know, uh, strengths and weaknesses and, and this is a really good competitive fight. And, you know, some people would say Wills has the, has the tools to beat him and others people would say Dempsey's going to blow through him just like he blows through all of them. And he's got no chance because all of what Wills does, Wills, strengths actually match up with Dempsey because Wills is a game fighter. He's going to come forward. He's going to try to fight. And that's what Dempsey loves. You can't outfight Dempsey. You have to outbox him. And Wills doesn't, you know, stick and move and run around he's going to stand there and try to fight him. And that's just not the way you're going to beat him. Other people said, look, this Wills, he's very crafty. He's very clever. He's fast. He's strong. He's tall. He's long. He, he knows how to move when he wants to move. He knows how to grab and clinch. And he's going to be a, a tough fight for Dempsey. So, you know, and I, I put all the different um, insights into the fight. Just like, you know, we have fights like last night, you know, Spence Crawford, you had a whole bunch of people saying, here's why Spence is going to win. A whole bunch of people here saying, here's why Crawford's going to win. You don't know until they get in the ring. And sometimes right. it plays out to be a great fight and a close fight. Sometimes it turns out to be a blowout for one or the other. You don't know until they get in there. But they didn't, so we'll never know. Right. I remember talking to you about, I think it was Wills or another fighter, and they said on paper, I think, Dempsey wins. And you said, this is several years ago, but Lou, fights aren't fought in paper. They're fought in and and you know that that's a very good point what's the one thing we should take away uh the legacy of dempsey's career you know what's the one thing people should know uh, his lasting effect let me put it that way uh what would you say his lasting effect is not only in sport of boxing but on america and the world well i think he helped exponentially increase the popularity of the sport I mean, and, and not only in terms of, you know, the newspapers and the films, but, you know, the, the you know, the, the participation numbers and, um, you know, he was just, he was just a, a, a big boost to, to the, to the sport and then especially economically. And, uh, you know, the, the, the 1920s was just a great decade for the, for the sport in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways it wasn't, you know, like it depends on your perspective. I mean, because racism still was, was at its height. In fact, some people would argue that there was greater racism in the 1920s than there was, you know, from 1910 to 1920. So, um, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons to every era. Uh, but, um, he, he created an injection of, of, uh, of dollars in the sport that wasn't really seen for a long time thereafter. But, to even today, we still talk about Dempsey. Still, people like to read about him. People like to read about that era. There's a lot of color to that era. I mean, there's just a lot of you know, interesting stories, and, and it's just a fascinating era. It, yeah, it's the one thing that never ceases to amaze me, Adam, that Dempsey endures. Dempsey is the most enduring, I think, of all athletes, uh, along with Ali. But from from before Ali, I mean... Dempsey never ceases to capture the imagination of the public all over the world. For whatever reason, he, people want to know more about Dempsey all the time. They can never get enough. And, you know, it, partly, as you said, it's because of his career and the way he fought, but he was so magnetic 
And just to hear Chris Dundee and other people talk about him, they would, they'd be moved to tears. And one thing Angel said to me was, he never complained. He didn't complain during the depression. He didn't complain when he lost to Tony. He just didn't complain. He accepted life as it was and he got on with it. And I mean, I think part of it is because the guy started off dirt poor. And I think he made more money, you know, beyond his wildest dreams. I mean, here's a guy who used to make $2 a day, you know, for him to make 20 bucks a week, it was like really good money. So here's a guy who just made, you know, just astronomical money. And so, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, he wasn't happy when he lost a fight, but I mean, you know, when you come away with hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, it's, you're not going to, you're not going to whine too much when, you know, at the beginning of your life, you were just basically a, you know, a ditch digger and, 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 you know, working very humbly and trying to trying to eke out a living as best you can. I think I think he his his career was more successful than even he could have, have dreamed. Did he really have such a high voice when he was younger that he would go into the hobo villages and challenge people to a fight? Because we hear him later in life, he's got a deep voice, a gravelly voice. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that Dempsey's voice was that high. You know, it wasn't super deep either. But I mean, I don't know that it was you know squeaky or anything like that. Right. Yeah. I guess it was more he was a young guy and thin and they didn't think much of him until he actually could fight. I mean, you know, not every not every fighter has, you know, like a, a deep voice, you know, like if right. you ever, ever heard Ernie Shavers talk, like, yeah, you know, you, you know if you just heard him, you wouldn't think that the guy hits like a Mack truck, you know? Right. So, so like, yeah, I guess if you hear Dempsey, it's not necessarily like an intimidating uh, voice and you know but if you, if, you, if you watch him fight or you got hit by him and you know you, you knew otherwise right and your book is available in amazon right on amazon barnes and noble yes um you can get it on the internet barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com and uh just you know type in the ring with uh, jack dempsey and or whatever other fighters I've written about, you can find them or write, you know, I type in Adam J. Pollock. Or Win by KO Publications, which is the best. Right. You can go to winbykopublications.com and see all of the books that we published. Uh, you know, I published books for many different authors. And, you know, there's a lot of phenomenal books that are uh, out there on the winbykopublications.com uh, website. And uh, you'll see some great stuff. Even if you're not interested in the books that I've written, there's a whole bunch of books on that website that you can see that, that you will definitely enjoy. Well, I, you know, I got to tell you, it's an incredible photo you with you that you have on that you're going to have to update with eight of your books. And I'm looking at it and it takes your breath away because most authors will never, you know, to, to have that many brilliant books for a guy to do one or two brilliant books or one, but then that, that have you sit there posing with all these, you know your your knowledge is is unassailable, definitive, and 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 encyclopedic. And I I can't wait to read this book, and I can't wait to read the third book. So as I said earlier, it's always a sad thing to me, like when I finished a Fitzsimmons book, when the book was over, because I felt like I was losing a friend. But but um, it's just a privilege and a pleasure to have you on, and uh, I'd love to see you in more documentaries and. I'd love to see you with your own podcast talking about about the sport because your insights that I see on the internet are just are fantastic and bang on and you're always very very calm in the eye of the storm. You know, well, you always, you. you're you're very kind. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Oh, 
our pleasure. Uh, this is we've been talking with Adam J. Pollock uh, about his most recent masterpiece, In the Ring of Jack Dempsey, Part One: The Making of a Champion. He's working on the other one now, and I, I, I got it. He's he's the best boxing author on the planet. He's the number one boxing historian on the planet. Win by KO Publications is number one publisher of fantastic boxing books. I saw on his site another one coming up uh, by a wonderful author on the great Henry Armstrong, and that'll be a fantastic read. And I want to get the one he uh, one of his authors wrote about John Marcy, which should be a fantastic, which should be, which is a fantastic book. Uh, I want to thank Adam J. Pollock for being our guest. And next week, we're going to have Randy Roberts, who's appeared on just about every Ken Burns documentary about his book uh, about Muhammad Ali and uh, his special relationship with Malcolm X and where that relationship led for both men and how it affected both men and America and the world. Uh, I want to thank Eric Boyce, our producer, and I want to thank you for watching um, Ring Talk. I'm Lou Eisen. I hope you had a great time, and we'll see you again next Sunday. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Eric, you there? Eric. Hey, Adam. Hey, thanks. That, the, I, I, I hope I did okay. Well, you did a great job. Thank you. You did a great job. That was a lot of fun. I can't wait to get that book. It was it was way longer than what I expected. I didn't. Me too. I just looked at the clock. I thought we were going to do like forty minutes or something. But you're such a fascinating person, and you have all this knowledge. I saw the Henry Armstrong book advertised. I look forward to getting that, and I always wanted to get the John Morrissey book too. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, they're by the same author, Kenneth Bridgem. Oh, okay. Kenneth Br Bridgem did the uh, Morrissey books. If you like the Morrissey book, he's, uh, the Armstrong book should be coming out pretty soon. He's the same author. So, uh, you know, get one. And then if you like Morrissey, I'd say get Armstrong as well. Yeah. The, the, I saw a documentary on Morrissey and his battle with um, Poole, Bill Poole. And, uh, and I'm watching this and I, I said to my wife, wait a minute, Adam's got, Adam's has a book on his website about this. Because there were several John Morrissey books out, but I thought this will be the best one, of course. So I, yes. I'm going to get that. I look forward to reading that. Because it's such a slice of, I, I, want, I should have said this on the air, you, it's not just boxing history, it's world history. You're giving us a snapshot of the whole world at that time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Kenneth, Kenneth knows what he's doing. So. Oh, I look forward to that. You, you have 550 pictures in the new Dempsey book? Oh, I don't know a lot. Yeah, I mean, you're wow. you're gonna get you're gonna get your money's worth. The book's like the second book is eight hundred pages, over eight hundred pages. Wow. The first book is like five hundred plus pages. The second book is over eight hundred. That's just nineteen nineteen to nineteen twenty three is over eight hundred pages. How so long did it take you to write that? Oh gosh, uh, uh, two to three years. I don't I don't know. It's been a while. And yeah. did you have to travel for information, or were you able to stay where you were and just? access um no um i did a little traveling um i actually went to the minnesota i traveled one state north up to minnesota uh to their archives um so that helped but more more often than not i would uh do interlibrary loans i get the local university here 
Uh, I also have a pretty good local library and they can do interlibrary loan where you'll get microfilms, you know, from different states and they've got microfilm readers. And so I'd go to the university library and read, read there and download and scan, et cetera. I found out that, uh, I mean, I want to do a book on George Budge Byers. I don't know if you know George Budge Byers and yeah. George Godfrey. They were, they were first cousins, black fighters from Prince Edward Island who were former slaves. Their families came to Prince Edward Island with their slave owners. But George Budge Byers became the colored middleweight champion and heavyweight champ. And Godfrey's cousin, older cousin, challenged John L. Sullivan twice, but didn't get a fight. But, sure. Um, I was surprised. I was dumbfounded when I went to the Toronto Reference Library and I was looking for a photocopy of a magazine, of a newspaper from 1855 about the family. And they actually had it. I mean, I couldn't believe you could actually find it. And I was able to look in it. It didn't give me any more information on a particular incident, but they had the actual magazine or the newspaper. So I thought that was, I didn't know the Toronto Reference Library, but also the Library of Congress. When you're looking at stuff there, it's just phenomenal, the information, if you really look for it. Yeah. So yeah, Godfrey, you know, there, there are some allusions to the fact that Sullivan and Godfrey may have been matched at one point to fight and that uh, they were actually going to fight and that the police stormed in and stopped the fight before it happened. You know, it's, it's, it's not 100% proven, but there's some allusions to it. Um, and, then, and then there's some allusions to Jake Kilrain having fought George Godfrey and knocked him out. Right. And, and, and so, you know, I guess you know, that would be Kel, Kel, one of Kilrain's claim to fame is he stopped George Godfrey. Right. Um, and the other rumor I heard is that Sullivan himself had called the police to stop the fight with Godfrey, but who knows? Yeah, you don't know. Speculation. Yeah. And who knows? It may have been true. I don't know. But the, the bottom line is they didn't fight. And, and, and we also know that Sullivan overtly said multiple times, I'm not fighting a black fighter. Yeah. But then again, we also seen that there, he was matched to fight black fighters at various times. <clears throat> and maybe he would have done it. Or who knows if he even knew it was a black guy that he was about to get in the ring with. Who knows? You know, like. He also was very good with George Dixon. He helped him out financially quite a bit, too. Yeah. I mean, just because Sullivan didn't want to fight black fighters and drew the color line didn't mean he didn't get along with black fighters. It just, he kind of was a very common, he kind of had the sort of the, the, the norm view of the time of the separation of the races. So, you know, now today's world, it's like, oh my God, that's horrible. But back then it was sort of common. It was just, that's just the way things were. Right. You have to look at it from the perspective of that era and not from this woke era where, you know, I had a friend of mine who's a comic who's fat and he made fun of himself and people are trying to ban him. So on TV, he said, I, I certainly can understand getting in trouble for fat shaming someone in the audience or a celebrity, but I'm allowed to fat shame myself. Right. I'm the one who gained the weight, but the people today are just so up, up, um, uptight about it. Well, I look forward to that. I can't thank you enough for being on and uh, it'll be posted probably within the next 10, 15 minutes. Sure. And by the way, if I remember the, the name of the fighter that Dempsey was actually, there was, there was actual talk in the newspaper about him fighting for Riesler. And it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't Langford. Dempsey later, his first autobiography claimed it was either Frank Moran or Gunboat Smith. And, but the actual person that they mentioned in the newspapers at the time was a fighter named Jack Dillon. 
I don't know if you know you're familiar yeah, with Jack Dylan. Yeah. That, that's who the newspaper said that Riesler was going to match him with. But I think there was also some allusions to possibly either Moran or, or Gunboat. So I don't, you know, he came up with his claim that Riesler was going to match him with Langford, like, you know, 50 years later or something like that. Or, you know, I mean, even regardless of how many years later, it was, it was many years later. There was no talk about him fighting Langford in the newspapers in, you know, 1916, 1917 or whatever it was. So I suspect that that might be one of those fanciful ex post facto right, rewriting history things. Right. Which I always, I was speaking to Russell Peltz about this, about it must drive you crazy at times when you see people make these revisionist claims and you read this and you think, but that's completely wrong. The evidence doesn't show that. I mean, I mean, even the way fighters remember their own careers or their own fights, you know, sometimes kind of like hilarious, like, you know, you're reading Jack Johnson's autobiography and he's claiming he won a fight that he lost and he's claiming a fight, you know, a fight that he, that was a draw, or maybe he's really just saying, well, I thought I won the fight, but you know, he doesn't say like, they ruled it a draw. He's just like, oh, I won that fight. You know, I'm like, wait a second, it was a draw, you know? So like, you know, like the fight, or, or they'll tell fanciful stories. Dempsey, Dempsey was a very self-effacing guy. He would talk about and having him on the near near knockout loss and on the verge of exhaustion. And I, I almost lost this fight. I almost lost that fight. And you go back and you read the newspapers, and it's like he mowed through these guys, you know. And like the next day, newspaper reports give you a totally different view of. Of right. things like he just basically destroyed this guy and like but Dempsey's telling the story in his autobiography like oh my god I almost lost this fight and the guy was rocking me and I was uh, on the you know, verge of exhaustion and I barely won and, and like you read the next day newspaper report and it's like not like that at all you know Johnny Kulan who was from Toronto the bantamweight champ was close with Jack Johnson as you know and and apparently begged him not to go down south in, in 46 because he said you know how upset you get with him and how poorly they treat you but years later he said i love jack but he said you know he was a rogue he would take money for vaudeville tours and not show up he would skip out on hotel bills and stuff like that and he said that creates a lot of ill will amongst people and he said yeah. he did that with promoters and after a while people had had enough yeah i mean you know johnson garnered a lot of ill will for multiple reasons but of course, you know, Johnson a lot of times would say things like, well, you know, I'm no different than any other fighter, you know, why are you so hard on me? And, you know, and then the question is, is it race? Because there are others, there's scoundrel white fighters too, but did they get as much heat for it as Johnson did? Right. You know, I guess that's the question is, is the, is the difference race or is it just, hey, we come down on all scoundrel fighters and you're using your the race as uh, as an excuse, you know. But but we we came down on the white fighters the same way we came down on you. Right. Uh, but that's the question: is did you come down on the white fighters just as hard as you came down on Jack Johnson? So you know that, that's the other thing is like the government came down hard on Dempsey for the draft dodging. They came down on hard hard on Johnson for the Man Act. So did they just treat fighters badly, or is it or is it race? Well. Well, here's the difference. Johnson was convicted and Dempsey was acquitted. And here's the other thing is they went after Johnson for the Mann Act. They never went after Dempsey for the Mann Act. And Dempsey may well have violated it the same as Johnson. So, you know, did they give 
did the government give as much of an effort? I don't know. That's that's, that's a you know interesting question mark. So I don't know. hard to tell. I know I know that George Budge Byers had two uncles in the early 1800s who were hung. They were teenagers, but they were hung for stealing bread, and one stole a half pence something. And but when I looked up the law back then, they said theft of property is punishable by death. And so there were a lot more white, there were only very few black people on it. Prince Edward Island's extremely tiny and the capital city, Charlottetown, you can walk in, in a couple hours. So right. there were very few blacks then on the island, but you know, you'd think it's racist. They hung them for stealing a half a loaf of bread, but the law clearly, there were a lot of white people hung too. And they said, yeah. Healing property is a death offense. That, well, here, here, like here's the thing: like you're alluding to Johnson jumping contracts and not fulfilling them. Well, Dempsey did the same thing at various times. Like, like we were talking about the Riesler. You know, he signed a contract with the Riesler and he didn't honor it, or did he? You know, or did or did they mutually agree just to move on, or did he just not honor it? And if right. if not, why not? So you know, but you know, he had a lot of managers early. If people forget this about Dempsey is. Early on, he had a lot of managers, you know, and so, you know, and they, they there's allusion to the fact that, you know, there's no piece of paper that you could put in front of him that he wouldn't sign if it got him a fight. So he had a bunch of guys that were signing him to contracts, managerial contracts. So he wasn't really fulfilling all of them because they're all exclusive contracts and he's signing exclusive contracts with multiple managers. Right. So, you know, does that make him a bad guy? You know, any worse than Jack Johnson, you know? No, it just makes them desperate to, to make it, to make money, to get out of there. You know, I mean, I, I always, the, there's so many similarities I find um, for some strange reason between, between stand-up comedy and um, boxing. I know Jim Carrey did the same thing and Howie Mandel with various managers in Toronto, and Jim Carrey made it when... He opened for Rodney Dangerfield here. Dangerfield took him on tour. But Jim didn't like working in comedy clubs. No one did. He got ripped off for the money you're supposed to get. And Jim was tremendously talented. So whenever anyone from the States came, I could help you. He'd sign a contract because he'd say, I got to get out of here. I got to get to the States. I can't stay in Canada. It's killing me. So I can understand that with Dempsey. Like, you want to get to the top. You want to start making money at what you do. Yeah. So, you know. You, you look like you have, your house looks beautiful. Uh, thanks. Well, you know, I, I, I positioned the camera to, you know, oh. give, give me a good, good view, I guess, or whatever. Yeah, it looks great. Listen, I, want to, I, I don't want to take up more of your time. Sure. I'd love yeah. to talk to you for the next two years, but I know you're very busy. Yeah, uh, it was fun. Thank you so much, and we'd love to have you on again whenever you like. Yeah, if, if, you, if you happen to wind up reading the books, you know, let me know what you think. I will. Well, I'll love them because I love all your books. All right. Well, take care. Good luck. Uh, will, there be a, will you be able to like email me a link or something? To, yeah. Like, put, a, put on Absolute. my Facebook page or whatever. Yes. Yeah. I'll, I'll so, send it to you very soon. Actually. Cool. Yeah. When it's ready, I'll I'll put I'll post it on my Facebooks and stuff. Okay. That cool. sounds great. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Take care. You too. Be well. Yeah. We were just talking for 20 minutes oh, after, yeah. after.